This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow and this is the Goop Podcast where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. Leah Thomas is an intersectional environmental educator, writer, and the author of Intersectional Environmentalism, How We Dismantle Systems of Oppression to Protect People and Planet. Today, we talk about the relationship between social justice and environmentalism. Leah breaks down what it means to be an intersectional environmentalist, a term I'd never heard before but love, and why she believes it's critical to address the interconnectedness of social and environmental justice in the fight against climate change. What I admire most about Leah is the grace and warmth she exudes and how she uses this to approach her work. In today's podcast, she explains how to stay optimistic about the future, why we need to acknowledge that we can't save the planet without protecting all of its people, and her advice for how to do less harm on a personal level. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Leah Thomas. You have such an incredible way about you and the way that you place kind of visuals and language to environmentalism, I think is so refreshing. And it's kind of just this new wave of creating openings to solve this massive problem. And I'd love for you to share, what was your personal journey into environmentalism? Did you grow up in a household where everyone was recycling or you were composting in the backyard? Are you a hippie? Are you (laughs) a city girl? What's the deal? Yeah, so I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and 
my parents were not hippies at all. They're really Afrocentric, I would say. So maybe those values translated into some kind of way. Like my parents were very like loving African-American culture and history and sharing those sorts of stories. So I'm sure there were nature themes throughout, but I wouldn't say I had an environmental family, but I was always environmentally curious. So running around, like catching toads, letting them free, doing like Midwestern activities. But yeah, I don't know, maybe later I realized like, oh yeah, I did have fruit from my grandmother's garden and both of my grandparents loved to garden. My grandmother lives in North St. Louis, not too far from East St. Louis, but she was this kind of Buddhist hippie who had a pond in her backyard with like turtles that she rescued. So it was an urban outdoor experience. So I guess I always had that perspective of like, yeah, this is just something my family does. And later when I studied environmental science and policy, it was almost laughable because I'm like, yeah, this is what my family does. Like we sew, we use our plastic bags over and over again. So I learned a little bit later, but I've always just liked being outside, I'd say. I think about that a lot growing up in a low-income family in New Orleans where the recycling or, or, you know, reusing food. It's like, we never threw food out. I remember in my neighborhood, we had the person who always got all of the bottles and the cans and everything to bring them to the recycling for money. And I think about that a lot and how it informs my desire to, or guilt around creating too much waste or having too much waste or not eating all the food or not eating leftovers because you just grow, come from such a, a family like that. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting because there's a lot of shame at times for lower income communities. And even growing up, I would never tell people that I went to the thrift store. And this is so embarrassing. But in seventh grade, like the Juicy Couture tracksuit was really in. And I mm. spent weeks going to Goodwill and all these places. And I finally found like a thrifted Juicy Couture tracksuit, but I didn't want to tell anyone. And it's so different now how, you know, thrifting is cool or reusing and repairing is something that can be cool. But I want people, regardless of their like income bracket, to feel empowered. So even if you're reusing or recycling out of necessity, I want people to still have pride in that and know that they're doing something good for the earth. I think, yeah, that's one of the reasons I got started with, I guess, intersectional environmentalism, because I wanted to show people like you don't have to buy your way into sustainability. So many of our cultures and practices are sustainable and we can build off of that. Okay, so pause on intersectional environmentalism. You're kind of responsible for coining this term. You've written a book titled this. You founded a nonprofit called this. How does intersectional environmentalism function, work. Yeah, I remember learning about Black feminist theory and intersectional approaches to feminism. And I was like, this is so cool. Like you're saying, I can take all of these parts of my identity, my spirituality, my Blackness, 
and also my womanhood and I don't have to separate those things. And it was just such a mind blowing moment Mm -hmm. when I was in school and I thought, wow, intersectional approaches to feminism allow women to show up exactly how they are and bring all their parts of their identity and say like this diversity makes this movement more beautiful and we might all be women, but we have different experiences and we Mm -hmm. shouldn't ignore those things. So I really just wanted to bring that to environmentalism, which many people have for a very long time. There's really nothing new under the sun, but it felt like there needed to be terminology to explain why a lot of indigenous communities and black and brown communities, low-income communities, eco-feminists, whatever it might be, are showing up to this work not identity blind, but bringing their full selves to it and advocating for their communities in the process. So I thought about that aha moment I had with intersectional feminism and thought, you know, I'm an intersectional environmentalist and this is what it means. And Yeah, it's been such a journey and just beautiful conversations with people who are saying, yeah, I want to show up in this work as my full self, not silence parts of my identity and coalition build with different people. But it's interesting because intersectional theory has been around for such a long time. And sometimes I wonder why it sparks with different people. But I've just heard so many cool stories of people saying, oh, well, I'm religious and I bring that faith-based background into my environmental work or I'm a part of the LGBTQ plus community and I'm passionate about queer outdoor safety or whatever it might be. And it's just been beautiful learning from other people why they want to show up in this work with their identity front and center. So it's been beautiful. It's also really interesting because I think that one word and and that has become very trendy, so it has a lot of meanings, is, is empowered And to me, I always think about how the root of feeling empowered or taking away all of the messaging that has like become this almost like empowerment through the lens of capitalism is that if you're trying to understand how to feel empowered or what it means to be empowered in any capacity, you have to start with freedom. What makes you feel the most free? And I think that an intersectional approach, like you said, because it allows for you to voice all parts of who you are and nothing is silent or nothing is cut out or nothing is let out. And we also come from movement spaces over the decades where it was like, okay, women first, but it's got to be white women first. Or this person gets the the vote, but we didn't make sure that poor people got access to the polls to vote, to, to be on juries, to do these things. And in that you're in a movement, but you're not empowered right? You're, you're empowering a movement that where only specific people are empowered. And so this idea that we approach environmentalism through an intersectional lens is so critical because we get to be that buzzword. We get to be empowered because we are free as we build, which I think is one of the most important things to, to sustaining any movement. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so many different communities have been told that our freedom comes next after someone else's. And especially with Black women and women of color, in the history of the United States, we've lent ourselves, even Black women at times, to the civil rights movement. And we're told, your liberation will come next. Or in the feminist movement, your liberation will come next. And I think a lot of people are waking up after all of these different civil rights movements, racial justice movements, women's rights movements, and are saying, no, we don't have to take a back seat. We can coalition build together. 
And there's this phrase by the Kumbaya River Collective, Mm -hmm. which is so cool, Black feminist theory, where they say, essentially, when Black women are free, all women will be free because it necessitates the destruction of, you know, the patriarchy and racism. And you can take that so many steps further. So it's kind of a backwards approach to ensure the liberation of the most the people who are closer to privilege instead of working in the reverse because then all people will be free which I know sounds like a utopia but again whatever that phrase is shoot for the moon and you'll land on a star so yeah Yeah. it's so beautiful (laughs) let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So why do you think representation and inclusivity is important or effective in, in creating solutions for environmental challenges? And I ask this because, you know, I think for civil rights issues where we truly see ourselves. And I think that in the environment, it tends to become this really big and abstract force. And especially in America, we think so nationally, we don't tend to think globally. And so when people think about voting rights, when people think about racism, police brutality, all these things where people are centered, it's it's very obvious that that we need inclusivity to, to create these solutions. But why do you think we need this for solving this environmental crisis we live in. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because there's such a separation from our involvement with nature and connection to nature, where we view it as something that we're separate from, or even like it's separate. We think about nature as like wilderness without realizing that our neighborhoods are also ecosystems and we're Mm. interacting with the environment each and every day. And it isn't always as obvious, but when we're talking about, okay, we need to save the planet, restore the rainforest, well, indigenous communities protect over 70% of the world's biodiversity, and that includes Afro-indigenous people, indigenous peoples all over the world who are stewards for their land. So it essentially makes not a lot of sense to not include the most impacted communities who are also protecting the majority of the world's biodiversity and our ecosystems, et cetera. And I think that says a lot, and that also translates to the United States, the people who are the least responsible for environmental pollution, hazards, the climate crisis are the most impacted 
however, oftentimes have the solutions to these problems that we're facing. So that's just one, one reason. That statistic is, is staggering. Do you find that people like AM, a large company or even a large scientist that would be speaking at TED or something comes in with almost this colonizer approach of trying to reinvent a wheel for protecting our environment and and really to kind of fall into this space of those who have tended to this land for hundreds of years makes more sense? Yeah. I mean, even something that I adore, like regenerative organic agriculture, people are hearing that a lot lately, but it's essentially just what indigenous peoples are doing. So planting crops that can coexist together and nourish the soil and essentially suck in carbon from the atmosphere. And we're seeing this new movement for regenerative organic agriculture, which is really important. But sometimes it's the repackaging of what other people are already doing without acknowledging the science that they've created in their own communities to get us to that point. So that is something that I struggle with because we do need these big documentaries talking about regenerative organic to get people interested, but we need to bring people to the table who have, you know, laid the foundation for what we're doing. Sometimes I feel I struggle with that because I think in America, we live in this like hero mentality. And if Mm -hmm. we actually wanted to center community and not our own egos, where we wanted to like, feel like we're on the stage talking about the thing instead of in a circle talking or asking questions about the thing from people who have always done it. And I think that like with these kinds of platforms, it's like, you'll see someone who's like, oh, I'm going to do this and it'll become my personal brand and it'll become my business and it'll be my kind of social currency when you're like, we're talking about the earth. And I feel that across all movements, and I really don't even mean to patronize people who want to create jobs Mm -hmm. and ideas. I think we need every type of entryway and on-ramp into this crisis and Mm -hmm. into problem solving it. But I do think it's interesting to think about how much more quickly and collectively we could move if we didn't want to do this work from a stage and wanted to do this work from a circle. No, it's so true. And I don't know, I feel like everyone can play their own role, but not forgetting that like grassroots community-based organizing is at the heart of it. And I've struggled with this personally in my own career. Like I've been talking about environmental science for a long time and being black and being a woman in this space. And then having like an Instagram graphic be the reason why I'm able to start a nonprofit or even write a book and always thinking about okay, how much of the game do I want to play here Mm. while also remembering that community needs to be at the heart and center. And sometimes even when I am in those spaces as a spokesperson on the stage, it's hard to do at this point because then people, sometimes I'll be speaking and it'll be a room of people who don't look like me and they'll essentially clap when I'm saying, hey, like my people don't have air to breathe. We don't have all these things. And then they just like clap. And it is kind of a spectacle. And I think there are a lot of activists around the world who are figuring out how to navigate bringing awareness to their communities, taking up space, but then also making sure there's action behind it. And it can be very difficult. And And I bring that up again, not to shame those who find their pathway by being a shepherd, bringing 
the people to the the, the space where we need to be. And it, it is so important. But I say that because I think that a lot of activists struggle with that. And I think that even in my, you know, space of as a writer whose work is often translated into activist space, I think about that a lot. Because if you think about Dr. King, you know, he was always just, he went back to the church. Mm-hmm. And you really rarely see a photo of him in his personal life alone. He was always surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we kind of allowed these critical works to be a vocation instead of a job is that the the community is deeply integrated. And for me, because I really write about and talk about beloved community so much, you know, to try to match it, I, I always think, well, how can I do something that's free? Or how can I do something that is mm-hmm. just for the sake of community? Because I think that to speak on something without the practice that really exemplifies your values and, and why you think that it's important. Yeah. Makes you lose, I think, a little bit of a grip on it as you talk about it in public. Yeah. And I think even recently I went to Nepal, which was so eye-opening for me because it wasn't like a touristy trip. I was with this like human rights and environmental organization. And they had us like in these remote mountain communities of Nepal and they were showing us like hey like our mountain is falling apart because we're getting increased rain that's supposed to be happening in this month but now it's happening now we have landslides etc and even for me that was such a game changer of like okay I have been focusing on local community but I can't forget or even when I speak about communities in the global south but I had never been there And seeing it up close and personal, just understanding like my community does need to get bigger and include these global voices and make sure that they can share their own stories and that we're not talking about, you know, marginalized communities as just data points and statistics, as we often do sometimes when we're handed a microphone to get other people to understand what's going on. But it really just reshaped my entire perspective about why it needed to be global and just seeing those things up close and personal and just listening to people talk about their experiences. And then also just being in awe of the joy that they were still finding. It's like, wow, okay, hmm, there's something here. And you and I have talked about this before, about this trip. And I think this is a lot because we're overwhelmed and overstimulated And it's, you know, our communities feel so dire at times in just our own neighborhoods that it is hard to think outside of the country you live in. And I think that, especially because America has such a nationalist spirit, it's really hard to think globally. And we really don't consider how interconnected we are environmentally. And something you noticed was the trash in Nepal that was collected from here, right? Yeah, it's so ridiculous when we think about like away and what away is like when you're throwing something away where does it go when you're mm. you know clothing doesn't get used at the thrift store where does it go and then a lot of it is shipped to communities in the global south and electronic waste or e-waste is one of those really big i guess exports if you can call it from the united states so you know phones computers air conditioners whatever it might be And then there are people in Nepal who are trying to sort through it with their hands to get 
pieces from that e-waste that might be something that they're able to sell to support their families, et cetera, but are being exposed to mercury and all of these really harmful chemicals. And even clothing, clothing waste is another huge thing that the United States ships to other countries and you'll see mountains of clothing. What is your recommendation for clothing you know, especially I think when you have small kids, we try to donate, but I often wonder, because I, I, I found that more and more over the years, your local thrift stores are, are taking yeah. less. They're just like inundated with clothing. And I think it's because of fast fashion and we need some other sort of marketplace, a really innovative company that takes all of that waste and transforms it into other things. But I would say donate when you can. I think Facebook market is also another good secondary market. I get a lot of stuff on there. And even if you're just giving it away for free, there might be families that need it. Also donating to shelters in particular is also incredibly important, especially for children's clothing and things like that. So something that I do, which I know sometimes like takes a lot of time, but once a month, I always go through everything that I have and see what I'm using and what I'm not. And even being in this space, sometimes getting sent random things like skincare and finding the appropriate places to donate it. So whether it's a shelter, my thrift store, Facebook market, et cetera. I do that every four months. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about the struggle with green energy feeling or being unethical. You write in your book, But while governments and corporations plan to transition to renewable resources, indigenous communities worldwide are being faced with the dark side of green energy, the lack of regard for their communities, their lack of inclusion within decision-making processes, and the constant threat of violence. If the global community does not act quickly to address these issues, marginalized people will be harmed by green energy transitions because even renewable resources impact people and planet. I know we spoke earlier about the need for all of these communities to be, to weigh in on solutions, but I'd love for you to talk to me about the green energy part specifically, because I think that even as a policy piece, I know that when I'm voting, I'm considering Mm -hmm. if and how they believe in green energy and in renewable energy. So Could you help us understand that even as we're about to enter into a new cycle of picking our politicians? Yeah, so nuance is hard when it comes to environmentalism because green energy, yes, we need to transition away from fossil fuels that have been so harmful for both people and planet. However, when we know that there's something that's really bad when something else comes up like green energy, suddenly it can be painted with, oh, this is just all good. But if we don't consider the nuance, a lot of people can be harmed. And in particular, just to summarize it kind of quickly, um, electric cars, for example, is where a lot of the harm comes from in the green energy space. Like lithium is needed to make electric car batteries. And the majority of lithium mining happens in something that's called the lithium triangle in Argentina and Chile, etc., So, and that's mostly in indigenous lands in these places. So we're seeing a lot of Canadian and U.S. and other countries come into these areas in the lithium triangle, and there are indigenous communities that are there. Lithium mining also requires a tremendous amount of water to be able to, like, mine it, essentially. 
So it is impacting their water quality, the surrounding indigenous communities. And another thing is also not receiving monetary compensation, like just going into indigenous lands and taking their lithium to power the next generation of electric batteries is not okay. Something else that I speak about in my book that's also really traumatic is in Mexico in particular, they're actually leaders in green energy and like wind farms and things like that. But there's a case study I talk about in my book that's pretty tragic of environmental activists that were trying to raise concerns about those wind farms. And oftentimes, indigenous folks and environmental activists aren't saying no to these projects. They're just saying, if you put it here, this might impact our waterway or this might impact our air quality. So let's move it over here. Like having people at the table to weigh in could make this transition a lot more just. But unfortunately, there have been a lot of indigenous activists in Mexico and South America who have faced violence and even been killed for trying to have that input into the green energy transition. So I recommend folks especially look into indigenous communities and their stories around some of the harms that they face with this green energy transition. And that's why we need a just green energy transition that's empowering local communities hearing their concerns, rebuilding local economies in the U.S. and globally. So just having that nuance is important because the transition to green energy doesn't have to come at the expense of the harm in Black and brown folks at all, no matter what different stakeholders tell us. It's your kind of theory of away, right? The people who are away, if you're not in the center of the city or the center of the wealthy neighborhood and you're kind of out of sight, to not allow people who are out of sight to be out of mind. And I think that having that kind of care and consideration for the community that you do see when you wave to your neighbor and the community that you may not see and and creating awareness around where these industries are planting themselves. And what I found when I read about and those communities is that it's not even just like they trap people in these spaces because not only are you trapping them with sickness, but you've completely devalued their property. So this thing that they've had in their family, that may be their only kind of space of any type of small wealth or generational passing on or a family heirloom. But in these places, their houses are now worth nothing. They can't sell them. If you can't sell your house, you can't move to a new house. And so I think that that's also really important to kind of fighting for for not only the environmental justice to breathe clean air that is not going to make them sick or make their bodies deteriorate, but also to protect how they've invested in and lived in our country as our as our neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it boils down to, like you were saying, infrastructure and redlining. And I love to geek out and look at like maps and things and if you have like a map layer of formerly redlined communities in the united states and the placement of toxic waste sites the toxic waste sites are in the formerly redlined communities and race is the number one indicator in the u.s specifically of where toxic for anyone who doesn't know what a redlined community is could you share yeah back in the day and even presently it's just technically illegal There was housing discrimination, especially of who would receive like lending support for from a bank to buy a house. So a lot of bank lenders would draw on a map with a red pen and say, here are the areas that we are renting to black people. 
And here are the areas where we're going to rent to white people. So redlining and that horrible practice has is what we still to this day, like you were mentioning, we'll see communities, even though redlining is illegal, that are still primarily black because of redlining and housing discrimination practices. So, yeah. How do you stay in a good mood <laughs> when you're doing something? And, and I think that, I mean, we all do what we can in the way that we can. Mm -hmm. But I think that the mental health piece to sustain these movements or even the energy to get up and do this work is hard. It's hard to think about mustering the energy now. Most of us are like surrounded by people you're caretaking for, whether that's elders or children or mm -hmm. cousins, and you're in a doom scroll on your phone. How does joy play a part to propel you or and, and, and fuel this movement? Where does optimism belong in a space that only gets our attention by like catastrophe, catastrophe? So where does optimism belong? How do we weave joy in? How are you doing it? Yeah, I would say like sometimes it's really hard, but I think after 2020, especially like a lot of black folks were like, this is interesting. Like there's a lot of tokenization that was going on. What's happening? Like, what are my next steps? What are my next moves? Do people still care? And that was a really difficult period because we saw hyper engagement on environmental justice. And then since then have seen a decrease and then also an increase in other areas, but it's been really difficult at times. But I think for me personally, my mom is also a mental health professional. So growing up with her was, you know, great. She was an elementary school counselor and now works in the mental health space. I don't know. I just was like, my happiness is not something I'm willing to let these corrupt systems like take away from me. They've already taken away so much from communities near and dear to my heart. And my happiness will just not be one of them. That's something that's off limits that they cannot have. And I feel like there are a lot of other people that model that for me, like my mom, my great grandmother, my grandmother, who, despite everything that they've been through, like you said, really care about their community. So whether that's showing up at church, hosting parties, doing things like that. So I feel like I've learned from them that I need to like just not let joy be something that's taken away. So I go to therapy once a week when I can. I try to move my body as much as I can. And I try to do things that have nothing to do with the environment at all, whether it's watching a TV show that's sci-fi related, has nothing to do with the earth and distract myself and then just realize that I'm a whole person and I hope everyone realizes that and that there's different parts of my identity. And if I'm in a movement space that's trying to get me to martyr myself for the cause, burn myself out for the cause, that's not a healthy movement space because healthy movement spaces should care about you, your well-being and the community. Something that I love that you tap, touch on is almost like joy as a non-negotiable. And I think about that a lot when I look at people who are very faith-based in how they live in the world, where the worst thing can happen. And it's actually where they double down on their belief in their faith. Mm -hmm. And on the day where maybe nothing's going on, there's a ritual around belief in their faith, right? There's this idea that you have a devotion to something that you know benefits you mm -hmm. or or you know is is just feels good and i wonder if people created that type of devotion around joy this idea that you need optimism or need joy 
on your worst day during your worst time. And in this kind of commitment to it is something I, I personally think about a lot. Yeah. And I don't know, like, it's interesting because I am spiritual in some ways. And I feel like hope and radically imagining new futures is a part of that spiritual practice, whatever it might be. So maybe in some ways it is faith, like faith and joy, faith and hope, et cetera, and just carrying that near and dear to my heart. And I hope other people can find that too, because I feel like hope can sustain us in ways that doom and gloom can't. Like doom and gloom has an expiration date. You can only get into so much despair until you get to fatalism, which is just, I can't do anything. Hope, yes, at its extremes can turn into apathy because you're like, everything's going to be okay. But to go from where we're at now to that would be take a lot for people to be like, everything's going to be fine. So I think we got to lean into, you know, hope a little bit more. I do that by also looking at climate solutions. So going out of my way to find, I don't know, the farmer down the street who's doing Mm -hmm. some cool stuff at the Compton Community Garden, which was just saved because it was almost going to be the developers were going to take it away, but the community got together they fundraise enough money and they save the compton community garden and like that gives me hope and i try to find those stories and then also share those stories on ie so it's not so hard for other people to find if you're the first person that someone has found especially if you're a young black girl a brown girl has found being a symbol or a voice for environmentalism whose work would you invite them to look at what practices do you invite them to consider if they want to just even make the smallest adjustment. You know, if you're the first intersectional (laughs) environmentalist that anyone has ever heard from, and they loved this conversation, whose work would they love? What and what can they do? And how can they support you? So two people, I guess three that I really adore, we're going to start with another Leah, who's Leah Pennyman, and her sister Naima of Soulfire Farm. And they wrote a book called Farming While Black. And they have another book that just came out. Such a beautiful, joyful collective of people. And they're just amazing talking about like Afro-Indigenous farming practices and community building and food justice. And then separately, to get back into the poetry world, I just met with one of my like idols, Camille Dungi, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. She had this anthology, which is why I'm doing the work that I'm doing, called Black Nature. And it's an anthology of poetry over 100 years, basically reclassifying Black poetry and saying, hey, you can't just say our work is like civil rights poetry. They're Mm. talking about the stars and nature, etc. We are dynamic. We are environmentalists. And she has a new book called Soil. So I would say check those two people out, Leah and Camille, and then other resources. There's an online org that's very easy called Future Earth if you're looking for just bite-sized information. And yeah, another incredible woman is Vanessa Nakate, who is a climate activist from Uganda. And she's amazing and has a beautiful international perspective on environmental justice in your everyday life find that community garden see what's going on locally that's what gives me hope because sometimes I'm like oh my god this problem is so big and then I realize there's 15 people down the street from me who are doing something really cool there's someone putting up refrigerators in LA and someone doing this 
find them, support them, whether that's just on social media, donating, volunteering, do what you can and know that that's contributing to the greater good. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Leah Thomas. Be sure to pick up a copy of her book, The Intersectional Environmentalism, and also follow her work. She is at Green Girl Leah on Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Goop Podcast.